Hello again. This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs from Atid with our second installment of our Jewish Educators Book Club podcast. This time we're sitting with Rev. Eliakim Krumbein of Yeshivat Haaretzion in Alon Shvut here in Israel. And we're talking about his recent book, Musr for Moderns, which was published recently by Ketav. It's not available in a bookstore near you. It's available from the Ketav website, which is ktav.com. And uh, as we'll see as we move through our discussion, it's a book that we're going to, to warmly recommend to anyone who's interested in topics of religious growth, but particularly for educators who are interested, one would hope, in their own religious growth, but in being a, a, a force of uh, being an impetus to their students to promote religious growth. And although the book is not written specifically for educators. It's, it's written for the, um, for the individual, for the student, a young student, an adult student. It's not, uh, it doesn't differentiate. It's going to be a book that's going to raise many questions and be very engaging and provocative to the educator who is concerned particularly with, with promoting religious growth amongst his or her students. Uh, Rabbi Crumbine, welcome, welcome to our podcast. Um, Pleased to be here. I wanted to ask you, you know, the question of the question of why, what uh, what drew you to write a book about the the relevance and the the challenge of Musser as meaning Musser, which you use as a synonym for religious growth. You're not talking, you're not doing an analysis of the 19th century uh, movement called Musser but you're trying to make an argument for the relevance and the need um, uh, of being on a path towards religious and spiritual growth for contemporary, contemporary Jews. What, what drew you to, to compose such a book now? Well, I, I think as a given, the uh, basic religious need, basic religious requirement, I would, I would put it, of a person to be constantly concerned with his religious growth, as you put it. Uh, there are many books on Musser, and it's an ancient topic. And uh, when dealing from the modern perspective, I felt that uh, there was a need for this book to be written. Uh, this is because I think it's a commonplace that the uh, in the modern Jewish world, even the modern Orthodox Jewish world, uh, Musa is not one of the more popular topics. And I feel that one major reason for this uh, uh, neglect is the fact that the, this area is so personal, so intensely personal. We're asking a person to make changes in himself, in his life, in his, uh, perhaps even in his psychology or in his very soul, to put it in, a, in, ext- in an extreme way. Uh, and, but uh, at the same time, the material that we, that we have to work with, the traditional material, is old. It, by and large, does not relate to modern man. And modern man is so different from his predecessors. He's actually changing all the time. We're now talking about uh, modern man 
in this year, Tashin Samech Chet, who is even much different from, from modern man of uh, eight years ago. And uh, for this person to take up the challenge of changing himself on the basis of uh, ancient texts that don't really know him, that weren't really written for him, is the uh, is a very, very presumptuous uh, demand. Uh, we could say perhaps that the issue was skirted by one of the characteristics of the Musa literature, which is, that, which is that it's very practical. So we can say that uh, perhaps the, one of the styles of, uh, of Musa is, uh, forget about all the thought and the philosophy and all the psychology. You've got something you have to do, go, go and do it. Uh, like a like a twelve step book. Yeah. Uh, but uh, okay, for someone who from that approach is good, that's fine. But uh, I think that most uh, thinking people uh, in our time uh, would feel that uh, that turning to them in such a way, they feel that uh, you're not really talking to me. Uh, and this works. It's necessary for uh, someone to really talk to a person and get, get down to the root of the issues that, that uh, modern life poses and show how that Bafka uh, Musa is, a, is a, an effective way of dealing with uh, many of this, these issues themselves. Mm-hmm. You, you write, uh, by way of introduction, by way of kind of giving the, the rationale for the book, that um, that these shiur, these the chapters of the book. It's important to mention that the book began as uh, its first Gilgal was as a series on the virtual Beit Midrash uh, from Shibaratzio, and I think that those some of those shiurim are, are still available online mm-hmm. for a person that wants to to sample them. But these preferred shiurim, proffered shiurim, try to open a doorway. They recognize that the modern Jew, replete with all the freedoms and conflicts of modern man, needs to be re-licensed as the guardian of his own spiritual life. So I'm curious, what, what happened to modern man that uh, de-licensed him, uh, or that removed him as the guardian of his spiritual life? Um, well... I would say the, the best answer to that is the, uh, the deterioration of the idea of the Bechlach of Shit. Free choice, free will, the idea that a person can choose uh, not only his actions, but also the way he is. Uh, this is uh, perhaps, this idea has been classically uh, set up by the Rambam in a Chuva, where he says that not only is the person or the person's deeds within the domain of his free will, but even his his character traits, uh, his very essence, his very personality, is something that he can shape by himself. Uh, modern life is really uh, an antithesis to the idea of free free will. It's so buffeted and, and controlled by gigantic uh, uh, frameworks and systems uh, that constantly uh, tell us that we don't know what's best for us and we can't choose by ourselves, we're being told what to do, we're being directed, 
uh, fill out the form and so on. Uh, and the person really feels that uh, he, life is just, just going, going along with the tide, uh, trying to uh, not drown in the current, but not, not actually swimming. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the viewpoint is totally opposed to this, and this is something which uh, modern man needs to be reconvinced that it's really within, within his power to, to control the things. One of the interesting things about the book, the book has uh, 17 chapters with a, uh, you know, with a short uh, introduction, 17 chapters plus a short introduction. The first 10 uh, chapters are really the, the theory, although by theory uh, you also have a lot of very uh, practical uh, material there, but the, the background, the argument, that the argument that you've just you know, restated for us uh, uh, briefly, um, the, the Hatzdaka, the justification for, for the book and for why the book is, is needed. You're, you know, you're laying out your argument, and then chapters 11 through 17 are really these very practical, uh, you know, I might also almost call them techniques, I think you call them techniques. Uh, there you're really mining, uh, you know, some of the classic works of the, the Muslim movement, Rabbi Sirah Salanter, um, from the Vardic, uh, etc. Um, uh, but you are, um, but you are translating them for the for the modern situation, for the modern um, milieu. Um, but throughout the book, one of the I think the really interesting things is you pick up the book. It's a book, you know, ostensibly about Musar. I, I don't know of any other book that purports to be about Musser that has such an eclectic uh, uh, gathering of sources of figures to whom you're, you you point, uh, so that on the same you know within a span of a few pages, you know we could be talking about Rabbi Nachman, we could be talking about Rav Salavechik, we could be talking about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, we could be talking about Rav Kook, we could be talking about uh, about Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, uh, we could be gleaning insights from contemporary uh, authors on education or, or um, uh, 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 psychology. Uh, particularly, there's quite a bit uh, psychology, some of which you, you try to uh, debunk, and others you, you grasp with two hands, trying to uh, glean insights from, from contemporary uh, psychology and from many other fields. I think that's one of the really very interesting things about the book. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, where did you, um, like, you know, uh, like, where did you get this idea that the, the bookshelf for Musser ought to be really very wide? Uh, I, uh, I, I agree that this is a, a major feature, perhaps, as you say, to a certain extent, innovative uh, in this book. I feel strongly that uh, that this wide reach of sources when dealing with Musa is something which is necessary uh, today, after today, as opposed to in previous uh, times. Uh, I think uh, people who know the tradition are used to the idea that there are various streams and the various schools of thought, and every school of thought, thought is rather orthodox and rather uh, consistent in the way it looks at things and in, in its approach. Uh, one of the major changes, of course, that modern life has wrought is just like, uh, just as 
the Jew no longer can be born, live and die in the same shtetl geographically, uh, the same thing is true ideologically. Whereas uh, I suppose that it is true that even today you have people who are lifelong Lubavitch uh, Hasidim, lifelong Narkoznikim, and so on. But, uh, but most people today don't have, the, don't have this insulation, perhaps quote the luxury of this insulation. Um, and the, the awareness and the contact with so many different schools of thought is, is a you, fact of life. What you call, on page 22, you call, I think, a, a nice phrase, cross-pollinization. Right. Uh, the, the different schools of thought in the, in, in the minds of the modern person uh, cross-fertilize themselves. Uh, unfortunately, they also confuse because uh, a person can be uh, confounded by this, by this vastness. Uh, I believe that, the, that we have no choice today but to, to try to use this uh, eclectic uh, aspect of modern life as, as a tool and try to utilize it as, as best as we can because it certainly does have benefits. Uh, even uh, someone who's a, who's a uh, born and bred uh, Breslava, in theory, he could arrive at the point where uh, Breslava thought is no longer uh, no longer helps him. And if he doesn't have the awareness that there are other things, that there are other ways of looking at things, uh, he he may be in trouble. And, uh, and this is something that uh, Rav Cook also was. Uh, very much uh, in favor of, and he, and he propounded that a person above and beyond what he needs at that particular moment from a spiritual point of view, it's very advisable that he uh, acquire a broad scope and broad uh, exposure to a wide variety of sources. I think this is uh, true also because uh, if we confine our attention in the area of spiritual growth to a certain type of literature, let's say the, the Muslim, Muslim movement literature. Uh, we create a situation in which a person, a modern person who willy-nilly lives in different spheres of life, so when he's, not, when he's in something that doesn't exactly fit in or join up with, uh, with the idea of Muslim as it's propounded in the Muslim movement, so he's not there anymore. Uh, and if we want, and might abandon the whole, the whole project of religious growth and self-development, right? Because it becomes something very constricted. Uh, in order to, uh, as much as possible, make uh, spiritual growth a healthy endeavor, it must be an all-embracing endeavor, and must be able to penetrate as far, as far as possible every sphere of life and every every intellectual language that a person uh, speaks in today, and and. The situation, as I said, is that today most people know how to talk different languages. Mm-hmm. You, you, I, I want to continue on this on this topic because it'll lead us, I think, to at least two very significant educational questions. You write again on this topic of the of the um, eclectic, the need for an eclectic approach. You write that my again this is on page 23 of the book. My own impression is that alongside the tendency for people to label themselves there's a growing trend toward cross-pollination of ideas, even among the insulated. 
people change, and as they change, their wants to reach out for wisdom that is not readily found within the confines of their familiar environment. I agree that insularity was more real and more possible years ago. Today, with the tremendous exposure to the wealth of ideas generated by our tradition, it appears to me to be less plausible, and also ideas that come from outside of our tradition, some of which are in harmony with the tradition, some of which are in dissonance with, with the tradition. But in all cases, a student, imagine a young student that comes here to Israel, to Israel for the year, um, an American high school student. It's a time, for many, it's the first time in their life where they're kind of, um, you know, off the curricular leash, and they're going to sit there in the Beit Midrash or in the Sifriya, in the library, in the yeshiva, and they're going to be exposed to all types of ideas and all types of, all types of uh, 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 books and thinkers uh, from all different types of periods. And either it's like the kid in the candy shop who, you know, you're going to taste a little bit of everything, um, or it's going to be like, uh, you know, and that can give you a bellyache, <laughs> or it could give you a, 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 you know, a mouthful of cavities. Or it could be like a symphony where you're able to put together this group of, of eclectic voices to something that, that makes sense. Um, I, I've just, you know, made a terribly mixed metaphor, <laughs> but I think, that, I, think that, I think the listeners understand that. How, how do we guide our students without superimposing our own notion of, well, this is the, this is the, limited, the limited bookshelf that you ought to expose yourself to? Um, how do we guide our students towards um, towards you know the the, the depth and, and breadth of of voices out there that are that are giving uh, guidance, encouragement, methods, techniques, justifications, um, impetus for you know a life of religious engagement and of religious growth. Mm-hmm. without it becoming this, you know, cacophony of confusing voices? That's a very good question. Um, what I think is out of the question today, of course, uh, is, is trying to uh, artificially limit um, any, any attempt in the modern setting to try to uh, limit in any kind of fundamental way, uh, the sources to which a student uh, can expose himself, I think, is uh, actually doomed to failure and, and is liable to be understood as, as uh, fear on the part of the education, uh, on the part of the educational uh, framework, or on part of the on the part of the himself, of what the student is liable to find or to find out, which we're trying to keep from him. Um, But I, in answer to your question, my inclination is to uh, try to encourage self-expression on the part of the student. Uh, when the student in, is in, is in the uh, receiving mode, uh, and there's so much there, which he's trying to absorb and, and uh, trying to absorb and 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 learn and dissect. Uh, there, there really is a, uh, a danger of being swamped. 
at that stage, of course, we can guide the student in, in uh, trying to organize his knowledge and trying to put it uh, in, a, in, a, in a general thought framework uh, in ways which can make it uh, manageable. But um, this, as I say, is when the student is in the receiving mode. Uh, I work with the students, however, should encourage them to express themselves. And uh, when the student expresses himself, then he, he, he says what he thinks on the issue. And when he realizes that there is something that he thinks about it, that, that will guide him to, uh, to find those sources which uh, particularly speak to him. And uh, those sources which, which don't, he might find ways of, of adapting them and seeing how they fit in with his, uh, with his general approach. Uh, but, of course, to do that, we have to, on one hand, in summing up this point, we have to make sure that uh, we're, we're, we make students aware that we're aware that there's not only one way of looking at things. And secondly, that, uh, that ultimately, uh, the final arbiter or the final uh, word in this matter, of particularly, particularly in this matter of the spiritual growth, is the student himself. And uh, that we value his self-expression, we're interested in hearing what he has to say, uh, and that and, and we have to hear what he says, what he has to say, we throw the ball back at him and say, well now go ahead and, and use this idea that you said and see how it can make you a better person. I think actually this is connected to one of uh, another point that you make in the book in a few different places, um, uh, and, and it's actually I think probably the boldest thing that you that you're saying here. Uh, you raise this question, and, and with all obvious uh, uh, due respect to the Ramchal and the Masil Sisharim, but the Masil Sisharim becomes this. Um, this uh, example of a text, a classic. I mean, the Basil Sham is, is a curious thing. It's a, it, of course, predates the the Musa movement, but becomes the the canonical text, uh, you know, of the of the Musa movement. It's widely studied until today. It's very common that a student will come here to Israel, uh, let's say after high school, and it would be it would be difficult to find a student that comes to Israel for the year and doesn't encounter Masil Sisharim in, in a serious way. And everyone, you know, certainly you would argue that uh, grappling with the ideas of the Masil Sisharim is something that's worthy of our time and our attention. But yet you raise the question, can the Masil Sisharim, you say here, I think, on page 7, can we still read the Masil Sisharim, the Masil Sisharim, the way our forebears did two centuries ago? But beyond that, you ask the question, well, what if the student is, and again, by student, it could be this you know, kind of uh, typological boy I'm talking about who comes at the age of 17 or 18 from a, a, a modern Orthodox North American high school. The student we're talking about could be a 40 or 50-year-old person or, or older who's embarking on trying to make a go of uh, reviving his spiritual or her spiritual growth, but the student, what if the student's reading the Masilat Yasharim and it just doesn't resonate with them? And now, many students are going to read the Masilat Yasharim, uh, you know, with all goodwill 
Midrosh and respect for the author and the text and the ideas presented there and the form in which the 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 ideas in the Masilasusharam are presented are, are just simply not going to resonate with them. It's not going to resonate with their experiences. It's not going to resonate with the way they view themselves, their own identity, their own religious life and challenges. And very often, the the student or the reader is going to say, well, then obviously the problem lies within me. And I think what's bold about what you're saying is that, well, maybe it just doesn't, maybe the Messiah of just isn't for you. And the example that you give, I think, here um, in... Uh, here in uh, one of the early chapters in the book, in, in chapter 2, and then I think again in chapter 3, you, you come back to this idea of, well, maybe some other thinker, maybe some other book is going to, to work for you. So put down the Messias Hashem and move, the example you give is a, is a, a difference, I wouldn't say a machokis, but a difference of approach between the Messias Hashem and Rav Hirsch. Um, and, and that's okay. And that's something we ought to um, tell people and something that we want to, to understand. I think that that's really very... When you, when you were writing this, were you, did, did you understand it to be uh, so bold and so uncommon? Uh, no, I was certainly aware that it's the, the uncommon approach to Mitzvah Yishayim. Um, or to any other, let's say, canonical text. It yeah. doesn't have to be the Mitzvah Yishayim. That's the example that you give, of course. Yeah, yeah. As you say, the fact that the Messiah Yisrael is so canonical, um, and we all know how we, how we relate to canonical literature, right? Canonical literature, we have the Tanakh, we have uh, uh, the Gemara, we have the Shulchan Aruch. There, uh, you don't pick and choose what, uh, what you want to accept and not, not accept. Everything there is binding. Uh, some things you can't do. All the stories say, okay, Anus Rachman Patre, you can't do it. But, uh, but you, but you point the accusatory finger at yourself. Right. Uh, but, but in the in the case of uh, in, in the case of, of the Muslim literature, I am uh, presenting this idea that um, that Muslim is, any Muslim book is certainly not an all or nothing proposition. Uh, for this, I uh, also brought uh, sources for myself in the book, and uh, the, the, since since this realm is, is uh, uh, meant to guide the person in his personal growth, personal growth is not something that you can uh, just push a button and say, "I'm going to grow in all these directions." That cost me what Yeshua said so. Uh, a person grows from where he is to the next stage. And people are, are at different places at different times. Uh, and not only is it true, as, as you said, that it could be that uh, it would be a good idea to just close in Siyad Isharim and open up a different uh, relevant uh, guide for spiritual growth. But even within the Siyad Isharim, itself, uh, or any, any other book for that matter, uh, it's, you can take part of it, the part that's ready, that you're ready for at that moment, 
and not necessarily all of it at that moment. Uh, in general, in, in uh, Musa work, it's a very good idea to take one thing and concentrate, it, and concentrate on that thing for a given amount of time. Uh, because to try to work on everything at once is uh, impossible. To try, to try to work on several things at once is very, very difficult. Again, because we're talking about the area of personal growth. Um, in the case of the Mishkat Yisharim, I actually found, after the book was published, I uh, found a, uh, an interesting example where even the Mishkat Yisharim was aware of different approaches. In one chapter, um, he talks about the motivation of a person to improve himself. Uh, how should a person motivate himself? So there he categorizes people. He says that people are on a very rudimentary uh, spiritual level. For them, the motivation is uh, reward and punishment, in a simple sense. Uh, he has two moral levels. And for each level, he has a prescribed motivation. Uh, there's a, uh, a synopsis of the Sinat Yishim, which uh, Rav Kook wrote for himself for his own private use. In that synopsis, he wrote up, he wrote, wrote up, wrote up for himself all three levels. Where is that in the Shmona Kvatim? Uh, no, it's in a separate uh, work called Kitsu of the Yishim. I don't believe it's found in the Shmona Kvatim. Um, it's been published a few times. And uh, so in the Sinat Yishim, these these three ways are considered three options. He's, he, he's aware that different mm-hmm. people have different, should, should adapt different, different approaches. So it's not a hierarchy. It, it's a, it's a, it is a hierarchy, but he says, if you're on this level, then think this way. If you think okay. you're on the next level, then think this way. And he has uh, three different approaches for three different types of people. Ralph Cook, in the book which he wrote for his own personal use, he wrote out all three. Which, uh, which brings us to another idea, namely that uh, at the moment, you may feel that, on the one hand, you're at a certain place, and there's only one, approach, one approach that that you need now. But uh, Cook really is saying there that a person, or even speaking by himself, there's a little bit of all those levels in me, mm-hmm. and at any given moment, I may find that I need something else. And uh, so this 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 is a uh, I think a typical characteristic of this of this area of Musara, where for one week you might think that you're in one place, the next week you might feel that you're, you're in a different place. And the uh, literature is, is such that, uh, in theory, you should be able to find, mm-hmm. if, if you look, uh, things that are fitting for you at, uh, uh, at that particular juncture. Uh, but it's interesting, at the same time, you don't let the student off the hook quite as easily, where you're saying, well, you know, just just kind of, you know, move the dial around, you'll find you'll find some uh, you'll find some tune that's going to uh, to grab you, uh, and uh, you encourage them to not be afraid of uh, conflict. That there's nothing wrong with conflict. You write that. Uh, um, uh, my own sense. This is the uh, this is uh, the, at the very end of chapter uh, six. You write that. My own sense is that practically speaking, any serious student of Musser, and again by student of Musser you mean anybody that's interested in, in personal growth. And I think that's the, the, the thing that the, you have to keep in mind while reading the book. When you're talking about Musser, when you're talking about uh, personal growth, or maybe there's Musser with a, you don't employ this, but maybe there's Musser with a capital M, where you're talking about you know, kind of the canonical uh, books 
of the Musar movement and the agenda of that 19th century uh, religious movement. And then there's Musar with a lowercase m, uh, you know, which is the ongoing. And to that, you you add all types of other. But you've expanded the bookshelf, as I as I mentioned earlier. So here you mean Musar. I'll say with the lowercase m, you're talking about the ongoing work of Musar, not the historical movement and its bookshelf. My own sense is that, practically speaking, any serious student of Musar, read any person concerned with religious growth, must be prepared for inner conflict. A person who has been so conditioned by the modern world that he will not take a single step that risks maladjustments will not get very far. Fear is what keeps us chained to our habits. Like an aspiring musician, we may aim for harmony as our final end, but all of our practice will be futile if we refuse to risk discord. This reminded me, of course, of, um, of the famous lengthy uh, uh, fourth footnote in the Ish Halacha, in Rabbi Salvechik's uh, Halachic Man, where he makes this argument that uh, Judaism's position is, is, is one we don't shrink from conflict, from the, you know, ultimately we're, we're looking for some kind of synthesis, but from the, the conflict uh, itself, it, the conflict itself is a source of, of, of religious growth. The conflict itself can be a, 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 uh, an impetus towards Avodat uh, Hashem, and uh, I think the balance of these two things, find something that works for you, but don't be afraid of conflict, is a very strong uh, message that comes through uh, in the book and something that we, we have to communicate to, to, to our students. I mean, we have to communi- by communicate to our students, I mean, we have to also communicate it, obviously, to ourselves. That uh, don't, don't, if you're reading, to go back to the example of Monsieur Ducharme, but really it could be any of the, books in the literature that we're talking about, if it doesn't resonate with you immediately, well, don't put it down immediately. First, let the ideas penetrate you. Understand what it is that you're, that you're reading and what's going on. And then you can make judgments that this is for me. There's nothing. Otherwise, then you go like a, uh, like a hummingbird among the shelves of the, of the library, uh, you know, just sipping from this and that and the other, and never really getting past the very uh, superficial uh, taste of, of any one of them. And obviously, that's not that's not what we're what we're arguing for. Later in the book, you uh, quoting a contemporary uh, contemporary uh, author Rabbi Saul Roth, who I think is taking a riff uh, off of uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik. You talk about this idea of, in terms of interpersonal relationships, which is obviously uh, one of the main, uh, the main playing grounds of, of the work of Musser, is the interpersonal realm. The difference between a contractual man versus covenantal man. Maybe you could just summarize for the listeners the difference between these two typological characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, contractual man and covenantal man really represent two different sets of uh, values. Uh, the words contract and covenant uh, resonate uh, in their ears as one of them being secular and one of them being spiritual. Contract, a uh, concept connected with the marketplace, and uh, covenant, something which we uh, see as a, as a sacred or, or holy undertaking. Um, or agreement between two sides. Uh, actually, Rabbi Roth points out that the, the contract can be used as a, symbol, as a symbol of a set of values which have certain, which certainly have 
ethical significance. Uh, these are values which can be said to be secular values, but which certainly have uh, worth from the spiritual, from the religious, from the Jewish point of view. Uh, the the, the contract, contractual values are uh, modes of behavior in which the person seeks out his own self-interest. Uh, where in, in the view of uh, Judaism, not only is this permissible, but it's recommended and it's part of, part of man's mission to be successful, to su succeed in his endeavors, to be unjust, to be industrious, to be competitive. Uh, in the court of law, for example, we have the value of justice. Justice is really a contractual value, value because the two sides that seek just, justice are trying to uh, guard their, their, their rights. And the, the Torah sees Tzedek justice as a, as, a, as a matter of paramount importance. On the other hand, we have covenantal values in which uh, the person engaging them is not there to seek out his own self-interest, but to build a relationship where the relationship is an end in itself. Uh, this can be seen perhaps even in the non-religious world in the case of uh, a, a patriot who is serving his country because he loves his country not uh, in order to uh, eventually be a good president. Uh, certainly in the religious realm, a person is serving God is uh, doing, doing, doing so in the covenantal sense. He's serving God because he seeks to cultivate, cultivate his relationship with God. Uh, so these two sets of values play a, a positive role in our total worldview. In the, in the extended discussion of this that you give in, here in chapter 7, uh, that contractual man is concerned with the personal goals and covenantal man uh, seeks to build relationships for the sake of relationships themselves, you of course then go on to give the example of marriage as the prime example of uh, you know, a covenantal relationship. Um, and I, I was wondering how you would see um, the teacher-student relationship fitting into this. I mean, no doubt that there are relationships, uh, no doubt there are relationships which, you know, for some purposes, lie on one end of the, of the covenantal or contractual spectrum, and for some purposes lie on the other. Even in, even in marriage, uh, there's sometimes the pursuit of personal goals, sometimes at the expense of the, the covenantal goals. That might be a recipe for problems in a marriage. Uh, I'm wondering how these, and sometimes there's tensions between the the, uh, you know, these two, I'll put them on an axis of covenant versus, uh, versus a contractual. I mean, you don't do that, but I'll, for the sake of our discussion, I'll do that. I'm wondering how you see this playing itself out in the teacher-student relationship. If I get back to the case of marriage as a uh, prototype, I uh, actually, I do say that ultimately that marriage is covenantal, but I, but I point out that it, in the initial stage, it's contract, contractual. Uh, a person starting to seek out his mate is not interested in, uh, uh, in, in, in building a selfless relationship with someone, but he's, uh, he has a certain dream, certain goal in life. He wants to build a house, to build a, build a home, 
uh, and he's looking for the uh, maid who will help him fulfill his dream. Uh, likewise, from both sides, from the side of the man and the woman. Um, once the, uh, however, the marriage is created, then the, uh, the both sides really are uh, ought to view it as a covenantal relationship in which each side is concerned mainly with the uh, welfare of the other, not not with his own. Uh, and this is a, an attitude which uh, ultimately uh, builds a relationship in a serious, profound, and rich way. Uh, in the case of the uh, teacher-student, um, viewing it from the point of view of the student, certainly the, uh, uh, the dominant uh, element is contractual. The student wants to, wants to want, is in the class he's studying in order to in order to learn, in order, in order to know, and in, in order to uh, progress in the way which he ideally believes that the teacher will be able to help him. I think that uh, from the point of view of the teacher, it is also true that his his initial uh, attitude. I think this is healthy, is contractual. The teacher is, is interested in succeeding at his job. Uh, the extent to which he is able to uh, educate his, his students, teach them, impart knowledge to them, that's a mark of his uh, success and that's his, that's his primary motivation. Yet, as in the case of marriage, uh, I, I believe that ideally there's a second story here. And uh, in doing things from an ideal perspective, if the uh, relationship goes on, and of course I think this, is, this, this would be true primarily when the uh, student-teacher setting goes on for a protracted amount of time, say in a, uh, not, not, in a, not, not where the teacher and the student meet for, a, uh, for one, one or two classes a week, but we were talking about a more extended uh, mutual experience, uh, there I think that uh, there can and should be an, a striving, an ambition to uh, build a, more, uh, a second story, a more profound relationship, which I think could be called covenantal. Mm-hmm. So that's what we aim for? Ultimately, I think so. The, um, in the, in the later on in the book, you... Um, address the problem of individualism. I mean, this relates back to, you know, what we were discussing in the beginning of our conversation, which is, you know, what's, what's happened in the modern world, which has so, uh, so bombarded modern, the modern condition and modern man as to be unopen towards pursuing the agenda we've been, we've been discussing. And uh, surely the emphasis on individualism is, is one of those things. And you actually, it's, it, it is um, one of the places in the book that you address most clearly, uh, most directly, most, uh, most uh, above the, above, you know, above the surface, the, the, the question as a specific educational debate. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious if you, to what degree can we really combat the almost overwhelming emphasis on individualism in 
the contemporary world in Western culture. Um, if we can't, uh, perhaps we shouldn't. But how does that complicate our work uh, as educators? How does that complicate our work as religious and spiritual guides? Uh, does it provide any opportunities that we didn't have before? Are there any advantages to it? I agree that, uh, as you put it, that to combat individualism is a uh, rather feeble proposition in our time. Uh, individualism, from, a, from the point of view of spiritual growth, uh, spiritual growth today, first and foremost, has to be exploited. Uh, we have to link in to the inherent uh, individualistic instinct in, the, uh, in our students, which they uh, assimilate from, from their environment and uh, direct it towards, towards positive goals. And uh, from my point of view, it could be very beneficial. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we have to build the second story, again, as I said before, about the, about the covenantal framework, uh, to try to demonstrate to the student that individualism, individualism is not everything. And perhaps, uh, perhaps in order to, to bridge, to make, make a bridge between individualism and the uh, kind of uh, ability to do to, to things in a, in a selfless way, which we believe is an, an inherent part of, of human psychology, which uh, modern life tends to ignore. Uh, to kind of bridge those two aspects, I think we can perhaps ask the question, uh, well, what do you mean by individualism? What would happen, what would have to happen in order for you to, be con to consider yourself a success? Um, try to bring the student to the point where if, if, if the answer to that question is uh, success in his career, success, success in his studies, uh, and success in all those things which uh, by and life would be considered marks of success, uh, try to make the student realize that that answer really means I'm a failure. If the person truly wants to succeed, then he has to, has to, has to be able, in a kind of paradoxical way, uh, transcend his, his ego, transcend his uh, self-centered individualism, and, and realize that, it, that, he, that he has a larger self. And that larger self is the, is the self which is found uh, not only within the confines of his own, uh, inside his body, his own psychology inside, but it's, it's found in his, uh, it's found out there in his relationships with the community, with his peers, with his wife, and with his God. Uh, if, if, if we can try to uh, succeed somehow in that strategy, and perhaps we can, uh, without combating individualism, uh, kind of uh, sweeten it and, and elevate it elevated and use it to, to arrive at um, 
Roger and just just to do justice to some of the other uh, one of the other major uh, components of the book um, and it wouldn't be fair to talk about the book without discussing this in the second half of the book uh, let's say from chapter 11 on where you really do get into different techniques and again similar to the first half where you're laying out uh, an argument you employ this eclectic uh, survey of different uh, different Jewish uh, writers, thinkers, rabbonim uh, from a wide array of, uh, of uh, centuries. Um, in the more, what I'll say, the more practical, I don't want to mislead the, the listener, the theoretical side is also deeply practical, but in the more practical or pragmatic or technique-oriented section of the book, you similarly uh, employ an eclectic uh, uh, array of, of techniques towards this, and you discuss things like hit bonanut and hit bodedut, and davening as a, as a Musar act, cognition as a Musar act, Talmud Torah itself, uh, at the, towards the very end of the book, as a, uh, as, a, as a Musar act, meaning learning as a, as a way in which we grow spiritually and not merely, obviously, intellectually. You know, on this, others have, uh, have, have written from different perspectives, from different... Uh, I would mention, of course, uh, Rav Mechenstein has, has uh, written on this in, in many, different, uh, many different ways throughout, throughout the years. Um, but one of the things... And, you know, and all of these different techniques are, are really very interesting and are liable to be... Uh, liable to, is liable to be something in there for everyone. To say, you know, I, I could try this. I could... I could invest some time in, in, in doing one of these. I don't want to, it's not a 12-step book. It's not like something you'd, you'd see on the Oprah show where, uh, you know, you're giving some kind of easy recipe to, you know, follow these three steps. These are all very, um, very uh, deep and, and challenging and uh, techniques that require an investment of energy and emotion and intellect. Um, but one of the things that you, you don't write about, but I'm, I'm sure it must be in here somewhere, and maybe I just need to reread the book again to see where it's hidden between the lines, is the importance or the, the, uh, the place of role models in the work of Musser, in the work of spiritual uh, growth. Role models, not, uh, not the role models that we get by reading their books from oh so long ago, but live teachers, rabbis, uh, uh, role models who, who I have access to, who I can interact with, who I can you know, learn with and learn from and ask questions to. And I'm curious what, what makes for a good role model in the work of Musa? What, what should I, as the student, look for in a role model? And then flip the question, what should I, as a teacher, who's a potential role model, strive to be in this kind of work? Thinking from the point of view of the student, uh, there's actually a, 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 is a machloket on this issue. What, is, what should the student look for? What should, what should, what should we look for? There's the uh, classic approach. 
And there's the uh, another approach, which is not the classic approach, which I but which I personally accept wholeheartedly. It's the approach of one of my Yeshiva Rav Amital Shlita. The classic approach is that, uh, as the Gemara says, in Kimarach on the pasuk Kimarach Hashem Tzvakotu, in Arav Domer Amalach Hashem Tzvakot, Yivakshut Arami Piyut. If the, if the teacher is like an angel of God, then seek Torah from him. This implies that we should, uh, in our uh, search for our own model, we should be looking for someone who is, as much as possible, a paragon of perfection. Um, I say this is the, class, this is the, classic, the classic approach, and uh, if if the uh, student finds somebody like that, then, uh, he, then, he, then he's all set, because then he has someone that he can rely on. Uh, somebody that he, whom he wouldn't need to, to second guess, and he can uh, proceed according to that person's guidance and example uh, unquestioningly. Uh, Amital, however, has, has a different approach. He says that the, uh, the role model of the ideal, role ma- ideal teacher has to be a human being. A human being with failings. Uh, someone who doesn't hide his failings and who talks about them freely. Um, the uh, Source for one source for this idea can be found in the commentary of Rav Hirsch in Sefer Breshi, where he makes the point that the Torah, when it talks about uh, the Avot, the great uh, patriarchs, the great role models that uh, we, we find in the literature, the Torah doesn't hide their, their failings, because uh, educationally speaking, if the Torah didn't talk about their failings, then the, they wouldn't be good role models, because then uh, the person would say, well, how can, I, how can I learn from an angel, from a person who, who's, who's, the, who's the epitome of perfection? I could never hope to be like him. Uh, so then, the, according to this, the ideal role model should be a person from whom you, you can observe firsthand how he deals with his shortcomings, how he doesn't try to hide them, how he faces them squarely, and how he continues to. Uh, to serve God and try to be an ethical person, despite the fact that he's acutely aware of his own shortcomings. Uh, this, I think, uh, I think the same approaches apply also from the other point, from the vantage point of the of the edu- educator as well. I think the same two approaches uh, are there. And uh, once again, as was my as was my approach throughout uh, the book, I stated, I stated what my preference was, but I'm not going to tell people yeah. what to do. <laughs> Very, good. Very good. Well, thank you, Rabbi Krumbein. Again, the book is Musr for Moderns by Rabbi Yochim Krumbein. It's published by Yeshivat Haratzion with Ketav. It's available in fine Jewish bookstores, and it's also available online at ketav, ktav.com. It's a engaging, it's an important uh, book uh, for people that are concerned with the questions we've been discussing 
for the past uh, hour. Um, and I think, again, it's particularly important for teachers who are entrusted with these matters in a way that some others are, are not. And therefore, we here at the Jewish Educators Book Club podcast, we, we, uh, we recommend it warmly and we encourage you to, to, uh, to take a note of it. You can contact Erev Crumbine through the Shibat Haratzion website and I'm, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear your feedback uh, as well. And we'll be back in about a month discussing some other book uh, that's of note to those of us working in Jewish education. Thank you, Rabbi Krumbun. Thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in this interview, for the recommendation, and also for reading the book so profoundly and thoroughly. Mm-hmm.